Hello and welcome to this podcast. It is the 10th and final instalment in the BCLA Clear podcast series. If you haven't caught any of the previous episodes, please listen to them. They're available through the current platform that you're accessing this. It's an amazing series and been brilliantly led and delivered by Dr. Melissa Barnett, who's a fellow of the BCLA and also a global ambassador for the BCLA. In this final episode, Melissa interviews Dr. Laura Downey about the BCLA Clear paper on the anatomy and physiology of the anterior eye. A key element of contact lens practice involves clinical evaluation of anterior eye health, including the cornea and limbus, conjunctiva and sclera, eyelids and eyelashes, lacrimal system and tear film. Of course, there is loads to discuss in a short space of time, but these highlights will give you an insight into some of the findings in the paper. Please take the time to read the full paper. Details can be found on the BCLA website. BCLA Clear is an initiative that has drawn together thousands of research papers on many different aspects of contact lenses into one place. The findings were published in Contact Lens and Interior Eye, the BCLA Scientific Journal, in April 2021. BCLA Clear was facilitated by the BCLA with financial support by way of educational grants for collaboration, publication and dissemination provided by Alcon and Cooper Vision. We hope you enjoy this final episode. Hello, I'm Melissa Barnett, and I'm so pleased to be here with Laura Downey for the BCLA Clear Report podcast. Laura Downey is an associate professor and a fellow in the Department of Optometry and Vision Sciences at the University of Melbourne, where she heads the Anterior Eye Clinical Trials and Research Translation Unit, comprising of 14 members. She's also inaugural director of the Melbourne Cochrane Center for Evidence-Based Vision Care, one of nine such centers globally. She's absolutely amazing, has many different peer-reviewed papers, is the lead inventor on two patents relating to tier biomarkers, and recently chaired the BCLA CLEAR report on the anatomy and physiology of the anterior eye. Welcome, Laura. Thank you, Melissa. Uh, Thank you very much for the invitation to be here. Uh, I'm delighted to be able to contribute to the podcast. Well, it's such a pleasure to have you. So let's start with a highly disputed topic. Does the cornea have five or six layers? Yeah, so so we traditionally think of the cornea as having five main layers. And if we move from the apical to posterior cornea, uh, we start with a stratified squamous epithelium, about 50 microns in thickness, uh, sitting on an anterior limiting lamina, uh, which we commonly know as Bowman's membrane. And this is about eight microns. It's a form of modified stroma uh, and tends to be acellular, except at locations where we have the stromal nerve fibers penetrate the epithelium. So then we have the bulk of the cornea, the collagenous stroma, and that's about 90% of the tissue, uh, followed by the posterior limiting lamina, uh, which we eponymously know as decimase membrane. And then finally, the single cell endothelial layer, uh, which is about three to five microns in thickness uh, based on typical measures. So then there is this postulated sixth corneal layer known as Dewar's layer. And this is located between the stroma and the posterior limiting lamina and is about 15 microns in thickness. So it's made up of about five to eight fairly compact thin lamellae of collagen 
uh, and it's devoid or sparsely populated with keratocytes. So there was initially some controversy uh, as to whether this truly constitutes a different corneal layer when it was first described uh, by Professor Dewar's group in a paper in ophthalmology uh, in 2013. So what it does do, the recognition of this layer, is that the posterior most 15 microns of the stroma is unique in terms of its characteristic. And in particular, it's been reported to provide a plane of cleavage uh, for lamellar corneal surgery, so deep anterior lamellar keratoplasty. There's also some emerging evidence about it having a role in acute corneal hydrops in keratoconus. And so we are starting to see this growing evidence of its possible role in both corneal pathology uh, as well as its relevance to corneal lamellar surgery. The, the debate is solved. That was an excellent <laughs> explanation of it. I'm sure there's still something. People are about this, you know, cornea, how many layers, and it's such a hot topic. Definitely, yeah, I think there will still be um, people on both sides of the camp. Uh, but yeah, I think there's sufficient evidence now that uh, it has kind of a discrete anatomical property um, as that sixth uh, potential layer. Fascinating. So moving on to a different topic, what are some of the important functions of the cornea? So we recognise that the cornea has several important functions. Uh, obviously, it has an optical role, and this is afforded by its transparency. It's the major refractive component of the eye and is responsible for about two-thirds um, of the approximately 60 diopter total ocular refraction. The cornea also is important for protecting the eye. So it physically protects the delicate intraocular components from the external environment, and also filters potentially damaging ultraviolet radiation. Uh, we're all aware of its sensory role. So it's one of the most densely innervated tissues in the body, and it can respond to a vast variety of stimuli. So this might be mechanical, chemical, or even osmotic changes at the ocular surface. And kind of related function is in terms of its immune surveillance. So we know the cornea is a key ocular surface barrier it has its own tissue specific, uh, largely innate immune profile. And this local immune network aims to protect uh, the tissue from a variety of different potential pathogens. Isn't the cornea absolutely amazing? Absolutely, I think I'm biased, but I certainly <laughs> think the cornea is an absolutely amazing tissue. Me too, just a little bit. The BCLA Clear Anatomy and Physiology of the Anterior Eye Report describes eyelid neuroanatomy. What is the sensory innervation of the eyelid? So the eyelids are innervated by branches of the trigeminal nerve. And more specifically, uh, we have branches of the ophthalmic nerve that innervate the superior eyelid. And the lower eyelid is supplied by branches of the maxillary nerve. It's been shown there's substantial complexity 
uh, to the specific types of nerve endings along different regions of the eyelid margin. Uh, so as an example of this, uh, there are mechanonociceptors uh, such as Merkel's discs and Meissner corpuscles, and these respond specifically to hair movement and light touch. Uh, and as might be kind of intuitive, they mainly exist around the eyelash roots and are more prevalent in the central part of the eyelid compared to the outer region. Uh, we also know that there are regional differences in sensitivity along the eyelid margin. Um, so particularly that marginal area is more sensitive than other conjunctival areas, uh, but still relatively less sensitive uh, than the corneal tissue. What a, what a fantastic explanation. And I think the way that you pronounce everything is far better than what we do here. <laughs> well, I'm not sure about that, but if it sounds confident, usually it sounds, it sounds okay. better. It sounds more sophisticated. I'm not sure about that. That's very kind. That's kind of you to say. So with all this digital device use, you know, ourselves, our patients, the world, I go around when I lecture and I ask, how many devices are you using? And it's pretty much now a minimum of three, could be up to six, seven. It's absolutely incredible. So that leads to blinking. Why is blinking so important? Yeah, so absolutely. I think we live in a digital world um, and we know that our ocular surface is therefore affected by our lifestyle and our visual environment. So blinking is essential to our eye health. Uh, we know in terms of kind of the physical act of blinking, we have two key muscles involved, uh, the orbicularis oculi, um, which has this brief phasic action um, with the levator palpebrae um, showing transient inhibition. Um, and during that blinking mechanism, uh, we get we obviously have the upper eyelid that does the primary closing and opening motion, and we still have some involvement from the lower eyelid uh, with a little bit of upward and nasal movement. And so as we blink, um, it's having several important actions and interactions with the ocular surface. So obviously the blink will protect the eye from injury or from debris that might um, enter uh, the aperture of the eye. It distributes our tear film. And so this ensures the eye has an optically smooth refractive surface. But also as we blink, we have that pumping action that facilitates aqueous tear flow and uh, ensures adequate tear drainage through the lacrimal apparatus. And so within that kind of context of blinking, we also have different types of blinks. So we have our spontaneous blinks, which we naturally do all the time. We're unconsciously blinking throughout the day without any obvious stimulus um, to provoke that blink. We then have reflexive blinks, uh, which are protective in nature, and also the capacity for voluntary blinks. And this is something that's gaining some traction and interest about how do we even train our patients to elicit intentional eyelid movements that might better achieve re-wetting of the ocular surface, uh, particularly when we are interacting with digital devices or concentrating uh, where we know that blink rates tend to reduce. And this may be a way of promoting um, more active functionality uh, of that blinking mechanism. And as you're saying that, I'm constantly blinking, blinking, blinking. Right. <laughs> It's like when we um, are doing research on blinking uh, that 
we can't tell people we're doing research on blinking because as soon as you start thinking about it, uh, everything changes. So um, it's kind of a covert aspect to ensuring you're capturing that natural involuntary blinking um, if you're interested in that aspect. Most definitely. Well, I'm, I'm blinking well over here. <laughs> and when we, when we talk about the blink, we, we need to talk about the tear film. So what constitutes the tear film and why is tear film homeostasis critical in contact lens wear? The tear film is uh, probably one of my pet areas, um, one of my major areas of interest with respect to research. And that's because we know that the tears are a critical part of our ocular surface microenvironment. It's that fluid interface we have between our surface epithelia and then the broader outside world. And so anatomically, the tear film is about three to four microns in thickness and constantly bathes those ocular surface structures. I thought I'd run through the modern conceptualization of the tear film uh, in that it comprises an outer lipid layer that is about 50 nanometers in thickness. And this lipid layer sits on an aqueous mucin phase that forms the majority of the tear bulk. The primary source of aqueous we know comes from the main lacrimal gland and this is supplemented by secretions from the accessory lacrimal glands and ocular surface epithelial cells. And then we have these soluble gel forming mucins uh, produced by the conjunctival goblet cells that also contribute to this phase. Then really importantly as well is how well the tears actually stick to the underlying ocular surface and they're anchored through glycocalyx uh, with membrane spanning mucins. And so we know that a healthy tear film is really important for successful contact lens wear. Uh, tears, often thought as a, a somewhat salty solution, are actually remarkably complex. So they contain many different lipids, proteins, as well as electrolytes. And it's this careful balance of all these components that's essential to having healthy tears. We know that a loss of the homeostasis of the tears can lead to both physical damage of the ocular surface, such as with clinic corneal staining that we see clinically. And then from a patient perspective, this loss of tear homeostasis usually leads to some form of ocular discomfort or symptoms. So these clinical features um, are really typical of probably the most well-known form of tear dysfunction uh, being dry eye disease. So in the context of contact lenses, going back to your question, it's really important that we as clinicians aim to optimise the health of our patient's tears and ocular surface before we attempt contact lens wear. And this is because the contact lens in itself uh, inherently disrupts that delicate microenvironment at the ocular surface. So patients who already start with a suboptimal tear film or ocular surface condition uh, will likely find contact lens wear to be more challenging. You're spot on there. And clinically, it's so important to address the ocular surface prior to fitting contact lenses to ensure success in any sort of contact lens, whether it's a multifocal, if it's a specialty contact lens, we might do that at the same time so the patient can actually see and function. But it's always important to address that tear film homeostasis. And when I talk to my patients about tear film homeostasis, they understand that. They understand that delicate balance of the tear film, which helps with successful contact lens wear. So excellent explanation there. 
So moving on to the next question, how will advances in technology contribute to our knowledge about anatomy and physiology of the anterior eye? So we're fortunate to live in this era uh, where we're frequently seeing these advances in technology and eye care. And one of the things that really strikes me is the innovations in imaging uh, that are informing how we understand uh, both the anatomy and function of the living human eye. And so just as a couple of examples, um, we know that in vivo confocal microscopy affords us with this unique window into the living ocular surface. So we can non-invasively see structures, often with a focus on the cornea, uh, such as sensory nerves, immune cells, endothelial cells. We see these in high resolution on fast, so we're like we're looking through the tissue. And we gain these insights into both what the healthy eye looks like, but also the impact of other factors, including diseases and even contact lens wear. Another technology I think that is um, improving our understanding and has a range of utilities is anterior segment OCT. And so this is high resolution in this um, form of technology cross-sectional imaging. And so we can analyze aspects such as changes in tissue reactivity and structure, and this can assist us with clinical diagnoses, but is also really valuable in surgical applications. So we can now use this technology intraoperatively for in vivo imaging during procedures such as corneal transplants. And so I guess with other, as with other technologies, we would expect these types of innovations to become more accessible and more routinely integrated into practice. And so with that, uh, we have these opportunities to continuously improve the care uh, that we provide to our patients. Those are such excellent examples. And it's amazing to be practicing uh, prior to OCT and then with OCT. I can't imagine practicing without OCT. Neural lens fitting and... <laughs> Just and revolution. even the posterior segment, <laughs> so Absolutely. the optic yeah. nerve and macula, I can't even imagine it. I mean, it's, it's incredible technology. And it's so fun how many different technologies have advanced. I know, I think we do love our, our gadgets in eye care and we're always seeing something new, something better, something with higher resolution, um, with you know greater capacity. And it's really exciting to be a part of that. I completely agree. So the last question, if there was one thing that our listeners should know about your BCLA Clear Report, what would it be? Yeah, so um, I guess just to take one step back with these reports, what we've really aimed to do is provide evidence-based guidance um, to eye care professionals about all the different aspects of prescribing and fitting contact lenses. And so our report, uh, we really consider a somewhat of a foundational report. It goes through the anatomy and physiology of the anterior eye, including features such as the vascular supply, the sensory innovation and the function, uh, as well as the application of technology. Um, and one aspect that we really emphasize uh, is the importance of using standardized descriptive nomenclature uh, universally across contact lens practice. So in the report, we discuss why this is important uh, for providing a framework to promote consistency within the field. And so for research purposes, it really ensures that different researchers across different geographic regions and contexts can use the same descriptors to maximize understanding and advance the field. 
And in practice, there's evidence that if we use the same terms with our patients, it increases our precision and potentially reduces errors uh, when we're caring for patients. It can also help with communication between clinicians and patients. Uh, so it's really important uh, that we ensure we use the same terms and words uh, to describe features of a presentation, and this will improve consistency of care uh, and likely even the compliance um, of our patients because they'll better understand their conditions and be more informed uh, about their own eye care. Thank you for writing such a wonderful report. It is so incredibly informative. I encourage all of you to read it and to read all of the BCLA CLEAR reports. And Laura, thank you so much for joining me today on the BCLA CLEAR podcast. I look forward to seeing you soon. Wonderful. Yeah, thank you very much. It was very much a team effort, this report. So um, my many thanks and acknowledgement to all the authors um, from around the world who contributed to the work. Um, it was a pleasure to be involved and thanks for the chance to chat today, Melissa. One of the most popular benefits is the official journal of the BCLA Contact Lens and Anterior Eye, covering all aspects of contact lens theory and practice. Available exclusively to all members of the BCLA, both online and via an app, or if you prefer, you can still receive a copy in the post. If you would like more information about the Clay Journal and membership benefits, visit bcla.org.uk or email us at membership at bcla.org.uk.